This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. Who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> From the University of Texas at Austin, this is The Other Side of Campus. Hi, my name is Jen Moon. I'm an Associate Professor of Instruction in the College of Natural Sciences. And I'm Katie Dawson, an Associate Professor in the College of Fine Arts. I'm Stephanie seidel Holmson, Assistant Professor of Instruction in the College of Liberal Arts. Welcome to the other side of campus where we have conversations about teaching and learning hosted by members of the Provost Teaching Fellows Program at the University of Texas at Austin. Let's do this. So about seven years ago, our university's provost charged a task force with the goal of creating a sustainable structure to advance the teaching mission at the university. The Provost Teaching Fellows Program began with an initial cohort of 20 faculty members. The mission of the Provost Teaching Fellows Program is to create and sustain a faculty community. The vision of the Provost Teaching Fellows Program is to have a positive and sustained impact on the quality of teaching and learning on campus. The program identifies, develops, and supports talented, forward-thinking, and service-oriented faculty dedicated to furthering innovative teaching. To join the program, faculty members pitch a two-year project and once approved, receive funding for that project and a personal stipend. The projects are wide ranging from innovation in a particular classroom, like a business class that gets access to real life data, to support student research, to university-wide efforts like peer observation programs. After the two-year projects, faculty members serve as mentors for new fellows for two more years at least, but many of us hang around for more. We're hooked. One of my favorite parts about being a PTF all these years, and I think I'm on year five or six now, I'm one of those people who keeps hanging around, is that we organize a lot of events. We're very engaged across campus. We do workshops that support faculty of all ranks and stripes, and even our emerging faculty graduate students get to participate as well, and our students at times as too. And these are for everyone, uh, whether you're a provost teaching fellow or not. And these initiatives, such as the new faculty symposium and Eyes on Teaching, which is an open house event inviting faculty to visit others' classes and talk afterwards about teaching, have really made an impact on our campus and brought us together in new dialogues around what does it mean to teach and learn effectively. Common thread through all this work is our eagerness to learn from each other. <laughs> I, I like it. We're very eager. We're very eager beavers. Yeah. <laughs> this takes the form of mentorship from start to finish. New fellows are mentored by senior fellows as they develop their projects. We also come together as a group to talk about issues in education. We workshop our projects, forming cohorts based on project themes. These cohorts span various colleges and the people in the cohort may be at different stages of their work. And at different ranks. I think that's also really important too. Yeah, absolutely. One of the great things about PTF that I loved so much when I actually came into the program because I just transferred from a non-tenure track to a tenure track position. So I kind of had been in all those spaces. Was, it was like one of the first places I'd been in campus where it was really non-hierarchical yeah. that I just felt like 
everyone was in the room because they wanted to become better teachers. And it wasn't us posturing to try to get a promotion or to prove our worth or anything else, but just really coming together around that that big idea, which helped get rid of a lot of the hierarchy that's just baked into the academy that can be really hard and problematic for a lot of reasons. Absolutely. Yeah. And getting us out of some of our disciplinary silos, if you will, right? Yeah. From faculty, well, on the other side of campus and you hear of their work and it's inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what we're talking about right now is at the heart of what a good faculty learning community does, right? PTF at its heart is a faculty learning community, which of course is also the topic for today. Faculty learning communities are groups that meet regularly to discuss issues around a central theme. And again, we've chosen very explicitly in PTF to make this theme incredibly broad. And and also in, in kind of our best grounded theory approach, like it also comes from the group. So because we have this incredible cross-section of folks from very different disciplines at different ranks and different sorts of entry points into the academy and what we do in the academy, we naturally um, end up choosing topics that cover all the different places and spaces. So our faculty learning community is as a whole, incredibly broad. And most faculty learning communities at their heart are creating spaces for meaningful conversations about that topic, that theme, that goal. So for us in PTF, that's teaching and learning, research and practice, the ways we can create more just and equitable and inclusive spaces for all. Yeah, so true to hear you describe it that way, Katie, because it reminds me of how much we really leaned in on this community during COVID. Teaching during COVID required a remarkable shift. We learned about new technology. We did things maybe we had never done before. We taped asynchronous lectures, designed collaborative learning for the virtual space. And if you were anything like me, you felt like you were drinking from a fire hydrant, trying to learn as much as possible, as fast as possible about online teaching and learning. In the process of ramping up in new technology and new teaching techniques, many of us felt stressed, anxious, and overwhelmed, really where the faculty learning community came in and meant so much. Katie, you are a resident expert. You were one of the first faculty members to organize a learning community at the University of Texas. You spent years then studying their impact, what makes them effective. Tell us a little bit about your journey here. What sparked your interest in studying faculty learning communities? Well, I think in many ways, I'm a a good poster child for faculty learning community. (laughs) Uh, My whole career has been spent putting myself into learning spaces where I have a very small amount of knowledge to be there, but I'm really engaged in growing and getting better at it. So what got me involved in a faculty learning community was really from my own deep desire to be in dialogue more with colleagues, either in my discipline or outside my discipline, about what's happening in teaching and learning in our our courses Um, and feeling that there were systems to evaluate our success, um, but not a lot of systems that that were outside that hierarchy that were really about a group of folks, like-minded folks coming in saying, gosh, we all have this question around assessment in around course design and around getting people to engage in our 
dialogues in classroom? Like, and how do we come together and start to figure that out? Not in a way that's evaluative of a single individual, but is really towards the fact that we're in a shared space moving towards change. So I've spent the last 20 years or so running big projects around these ideas of change in schools through the arts in K-12 education. And when I became a PTF, I had this incredible opportunity to try to translate that work in a really significant way to higher education. And I gotta say, I was terrified. Um, I just wasn't quite sure people would be willing to do that with me. In my experience, people weren't having conversations about pedagogy unless they were in that area. And, And at times when I wanted to talk about it with people, it got you know, made people nervous because it felt like suddenly they weren't good teachers Hmm. um, because they might not have had the language that I have about it just because I study pedagogy. Um, So I reached out to some really awesome people, one of whom is Jen Moon and um, who, to be very frank, would I knew would be willing to come and be honest and give it a go and try out what I ended up calling an active and creative teaching practice where we were pulling from both the kind of creative learning literature that comes from the arts, as well as just active teaching strategies and experiential learning, which comes from general education. And we got our group together and we, you know, did this also through IRB. So I was actually doing some research on it as part of my own discipline studies. And um, we got together and I modeled some strategies and we had tacos together and we just sat down and tried to figure out how these kind of active and creative strategies, because that was the entry point to this FLC, might be or might not be useful across our other courses and other disciplines of the folks in the group. You know, so Katie, Jen, I want to hear your story. I can see it's so contagious from Katie. So tell me how you picked it up and got involved. It's so interesting because I, I did get such inspiration from participating in Katie's learning community. And I remember when she said we got tacos, I remember distinctly sitting in this little desk in a part of campus I had never actually been in that building before, the theater building, and sitting in this room with folks from different colleges and and like, who are these people? It was amazing and just incredible stuff. And then finding very shortly after that, I had a lot in common, least of which is just the interest in trying new things and learning from others. So, and you'll see right away how Katie's been a huge influence on my own learning community. So mine started, I guess with an observation, I was at a conference and I was really struck by this particular presentation where they showed two instructors and they kept the two classes that those two instructors were giving completely the same. So same lecture slides, same quizzes, same activities, same everything. And they wanted to see what the student learning outcomes were in those two populations. Two different professors, but everything else the same. And I was really struck because at the end of this presentation, they shared that Professor A saw great learning gains in students of color and women. These are science courses, by the way. And then Professor B showed a decline or or no, no measured increase in learning gains. Then I was really struck with, you know, it's the elephant in the room, isn't it? That so much of how successful our course is is about who we are as people and how we do that, right? And so I I was like, no one's talking about that. I mean, at the time and in my small world, I I didn't hear anybody saying, you know, this course is successful because the students trust their professor. It's not because they're doing a flipped classroom or they're doing X, Y, and Z technique. That can be helpful. But if you're not actually 
creating a community in your classroom with trust, it's not, it's really not going to matter if you do all of the latest things, right? So I got really interested. And of course, Katie's like the perfect person to talk to about this, being from an arts background. So I started this learning community called Performance Training for Instructors. And it's a community of STEM instructors. So right now we have College of Natural Sciences and, and Engineering, College of Engineering. And they go through six workshops in the fall and then there's some monthly meetings in the spring. And the workshops are things like nonverbal communication, how to build trust in your classroom community, presentation skills, all this kind of stuff. Uh, we, we have people that teach improv come and teach these faculty members how to do improv as a way of handling things that come up in the classroom. And, and it's been fascinating for me to see how people approach it. And it's all ranks, you know, full professors to, to non-tenure track individuals. And we're all in this room together learning about this stuff. And, and Katie comes and gives our first workshop. It sets the tone for the whole thing. And she's been doing that for years for us. So it's been fantastic to continue to learn from her. What I love about coming into that room in particular is you've chosen to use these really specific things that are sometimes what we call those affective things, right? The, mm -hmm. the things that are about the social cultural space of teaching and learning, which is like who we are, our own identities, our students' identities. You do really neat work in that sequence about how do we invite space for people to dialogue and bring in their own lived experience. I mean, your kind of use of improvisation, I think, is such a great entry point to that. A lot of the work I love in that area is from a, an education scholar named Keith Sawyer, who I uh, was a jazz musician for many years and then went and studied Second City, which is a, a big improvisational group in Chicago, to understand how good teaching works. That idea of flow, like being in a moment where you're building on ideas and it gets mm -hmm. more rich and complex because you're kind of tying things together. And I just love the ways that your science people, your STEM people get to kind of activate or start to question for themselves, what is it to be in a learning space where you're not just filling me full of information solely, right? That there's also some opportunity to try to be active and creative in our meaning making. And then we also like make meaning in lots of different ways, you know, through the visual and the body. And I know, again, that gets really radical. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It is radical for these STEM folks. I remember we were talking about, you did an exercise where we had to hold thumbs or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thumb. Yeah, people were like, no, we don't touch each other. Right. That's not a thing we do. It was, yeah. it was so, so fun. I, I want to kick it over to Stephanie because Stephanie, you and I, and and I know you've talked to Katie about your own um, learning community and global classrooms. You were mentioning earlier, one of the kind of cool things about this is Katie kind of started this whole thing. I was involved in Katie's learning community, started my own thing. You shared that in talking with us, you then felt emboldened <laughs> to start yours. So tell me about that. How did that get started? Well, similarly to you, Jen, I had an experience where I recognized a void and had heard you and Katie talking about faculty learning communities. And I thought this void could be filled with a faculty learning community. What I enjoyed about what you were describing, Jen, is it seems like your project reinserts the faculty member back into the classroom and says that the faculty member has a presence. We are not merely the chalkboard that we're writing on or the lecture slide clicker that's conveying information, but we have a presence uh, in that classroom. I enjoyed uh, hearing about your work. So Katie's efforts, you inspired me, I knew about y'all's work and how the faculty learning community allowed faculty to play together around building a new skill. 
I was teaching a class with a global virtual exchange element to it, making connections through this classroom around the world. We had students from South America joining us weekly. My Austin-based students were collaborating in research with students in Santiago, Chile, and Lima, Peru. It was inspiring for sure, and it was uber challenging. We had tech issues. We had design issues. I now had a faculty member, two faculty members in other countries that I was communicating with regularly. And I realized, holy smokes, I need some space in my life to just talk about what I'm doing, find some colleagues that are sharing in these challenges and might help me workshop and brainstorm my way out of some of the challenges, as well as a group of folks to celebrate the successes. Somebody who understands what it took to get this outcome, I would love to share that success with them. And so I asked you and Katie to meet with me. We met in the coffee shop in the computer science building oh, and we right. talked I through. that very well. Jen and I remember that, yeah. <laughs> you needed a support group. <laughs> I needed a support group for my support it. group. So I gathered the faculty members teaching global virtual exchange, offered it to them. It was optional. They chose in. It was a great cohort of people trying new things. And so I designed this faculty learning community around three ideas. We met initially three times to discuss learning objectives for our global virtual exchange. How would we design our collaborative project? And what does reflection and assessment look like in this new classroom? After those three, we had created, I think, such a community that faculty then asked to meet four more times, even into COVID. So we met at least three times by Zoom. And after the three themed workshops, I started thinking about why did we do four more? And I think it was because that space had created an opportunity for faculty to talk honestly about some of the challenges that they were facing because we were faculty of different positions in the university and different departments in the university. There was not a big ego. We could commiserate about the common practice of what we were doing rather than the discipline specific or position specific burdens. And so we ended up then sharing challenges that we were facing. We shared a lot of resources, so use this, or I found this helpful, and then we talked through possible solutions. So it ended up being a great space for community for these faculty members. I love that so much, Stephanie, and I was a member of that community, so I got to benefit from all of your wisdom. And couple things you said that stick out to me that I think really reflect back to my own experience. So come some common themes across. One of the things I ended up doing was just literally taking the transcripts from every meeting, Jen, that I had with all of you and analyzing it across. And it's really interesting to see my analysis of that, Stephanie, like spot on to what you just described. Like we started out in an interesting way we are, we don't have trust with each other. I mean, this is also true for our learning communities with our students, right? That's yeah, why absolutely. these are so powerful because we're right. modeling as teachers, we're getting to be students again and to feel in our bodies what it feels like, which might invite us to think differently about how we teach our own classes or how hard and scary it feels to share about yourself. But anyway, just looking at my stuff over time, you know, it was a lot around initially everyone in Jen's cohort, like folks in the community initially talked just only about their stuff. And by the end of it, all people wanted to do was work on each other's stuff. 
there was all this incredible language that came up around the scholarship of teaching and learning and student outcomes that just naturally emerged as opposed to us sitting in some PowerPointy session put on telling us to like be better teachers because we need to talk about student outcomes. Uh-huh. Like, what is it to organically discover that through our own shared desire to be better at what we're doing? As you're talking, it's reminding me too, if you remember at the end of our learning community, one of the faculty members in that community had a film show for their students' work. And all of us in the faculty learning community said, we want to come, we want to see what your students produce. I am never in that department. And here I had a chance to see what goes on and felt like we were there to support what that faculty member was doing in his class. Yeah, there's just that investment we get in each other. And really, that's like the thing we want in every learning space. We want our students to have that same investment and care. You know, it takes time to build community. And um, and what are the ways that we can, in a faculty learning community, recognize that? It's not something you get together twice and it's done, right? Right. It really is something that takes time. And it needs to be the same group. Before I was thinking about faculty learning communities, you know, having workshops for this and that. And workshops are great, but if it's a different group of people each time, you lose a lot. And and so, you know, one of the things in, in my faculty learning community, and probably yours too, is that you have to have a commitment of people to come and participate as much as they're able. And it's the same group. Yeah. Because that's otherwise you don't have the time to create that space. I think a key with that same group and what Katie was saying was making me think of this too, is this level of vulnerability that occurs in the learning community, as Katie was suggesting, where I would say, I designed this assignment and I gave it to my students and it did not work. Mm -hmm. Who in my life am I willing to say those sorts of things about my own profession? The learning community became a space where I said, I tried to be effective and I was ineffective. Can you help me think through where to go with that? And I don't know in what other space I talk so openly about what didn't work. And as you're saying, Jen, if it was a different group of people each month, I might be inclined to put on my best self each meeting rather than say, remember how I told you it didn't work, right? But we (laughs) journeyed with each other through all of that. Yeah, that's a great point, Stephanie. That's right. I think that's at the heart what good FLCs do is they give us a chance to reflect on our practice and get reflexive about it because reflexivity digs more into our core values and who we are and those things that really matter that when push comes to shove, I'm going to stay up later to get this PowerPoint deck slide really awesome for my class tomorrow's lecture because I this part matters to me, right? Or it's that that juice that holds us up over hard times like COVID right? Where we really have to dig in and say, okay, we all have to pivot really quick. What are the essential parts of this class? I'm going to let go some of it because we all need to myself and my students, but what's the core discipline thing I'm teaching here? And I think the more we get reflexive about kind of what we're trying to do, the better. And I think we get to practice that muscle in an FLC. And hopefully we'll get to hear across this series from some other FLCs that are doing that work in their program because I think that's also a really important thing that that happens as well. You know, and we've certainly had our rose-colored glasses on about faculty learning communities, but I imagine there is probably a kryptonite to faculty learning communities, right? What, <laughs> what can ruin one of these things? 
So we talked a lot about having trust in that community. You need to be the, what, sort of the guardian angel of of the trust covenant in that community. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There are people that may be bringing some kind of negativity or, or something in there. You need to kind of address it quickly. So as the facilitator of the group, I think it's a responsibility to kind of make sure that people feel they're willing to to share freely. So kryptonite would be having that person kind of undermine you. And it makes me think just about, I bet we're going to have like, here's the problem, here's the solution as we talk about this, because I think community agreements are a good way to go about that. So how are we setting a shared set of intentionality or way of working? And, you know, that's a really very clear way to do it. That's not in everyone's comfort wheelhouse either. That sometimes will be a little new for some folks. It's very big in the arts, so we do it all the time. But I think that idea of just having like, here's what I need individually to have this thing be successful and inviting everyone to think about that at the top as an entry point and getting to hear like, yes, I'm responsible for my need, but I'm also in the room or community with this other person who may have a very different need. So it's good for me to know that too. And that that's also a living document that can be come back to or addressed. That's one way to think about that. And as you talk about that, Katie, again, it just speaks back to the classroom. I mean, these are things that we could do with our students as well. I liked your point earlier about being a learner in a faculty learning community where we try and don't get it right the first time. I'm not sure in my classroom, I've got a lot of opportunities for students to sort of openly do that without feeling punished by the grading system. One of the tips I remember you two gave me is this idea of having some guiding theme for some of the early meetings. So we're getting together to talk about the learning outcomes for your class and then resourcing that meeting with maybe some extra folks that might share some things or a reading ahead of time. Sometimes we look at an article. There was a bit of a purpose, not, I would say, an agenda, but a purpose maybe to those early meetings. In faculty change work, we're often talking about job embedded practice as being sort of the gold standard that change has really happened. What that means is that you've done it enough that it's like who you are now. And it's a thing like you you just know to do it that way. So I think there's something about, I'd love to hear about the kryptonite part of like, how do you, how do you give people opportunity to apply what they're learning? So it's not just us talking about it, but applying. What would you say about that part? It's a great question. You know, for me, it was that faculty were teaching classes with global virtual exchange during our faculty learning community. And, so and that was idea. a requirement for membership, right, Stephanie, which I thought was really helpful because we were all in it at different ways. And and we all had our own journeys, but that enabled us all to really come to that in really like with just in time questions that we were struggling with, which made it feel really, really useful. Yeah. I think the just in time dynamic was crucial. It made the themes of the learning community then not something that we were studying from far, but practicing week to week. So when we would get together, what happened over the last two weeks for you as you tried that new tool? Whereas sometimes when we're studying things right now, I'm studying technology for the fall, but I'm not actually using that technology. I'm just studying it. So I'm taking notes. I'm a little bit of a passive observer, but in the time, I'll certainly be learning it in a different way. Yeah. We had assigned projects. So you were part of our learning community, the performance training for instructors. You had to identify two things that you were going to change about your teaching. For some people, it was just doing some, you know, it was just being comfortable standing in front of 200 people Mm. and practicing some of those 
tricks that you have about having some stage presence and so on. Also made it really difficult to assess the program. And, you know, that's another component of all this that we haven't talked about. As you mentioned it briefly, Katie, about what we're doing now to assess the program efficacy, but the people contributing to this work and we're using this in the classroom as we are meeting as part of our learning community, we're able to then share their successes. But it was very personal. You know, I don't feel, let's say, I'm a ham. So no, that's not my problem. But let's say <laughs> I don't feel comfortable standing in front of 200 people. That's a vulnerability. And and coming back to something you said earlier, Katie, that really made me think having a contract, but in some of these faculty communities, and I'm going to say ours might be one of them. So these are all, you know, science and engineering professors. I think there are very different, or maybe there are different dynamics in different colleges. So just the idea that we would trust each other, like verbalize that is a huge leap. To yeah. say we're, we as a group are going to trust each other with being vulnerable. That is not a conversation I don't think I've ever had, ever. So it feels really awkward just to get that far. And, and that builds over time. I mean, part of the natural human interaction facilitates that. But it's, it's very striking how these different cultures inform how the community is going to be built. As the person who has been lucky enough to kick off that first session with you, I actually haven't chosen to say, oh, let's make a contract of agreement on participation. I, it's interesting. And what instead, I think what I often do in that session, as a certainly as a provocation, and I know I'm a bit of a provo- provocateur for all of you, which is all is good for me to, to sit in that role. I'm happy to be in and out that way is this idea that if you remember, I take folks through a series of questions about how they learn. And I do it mostly because everyone has a different answer. I mean, there's some things that I think more people agree on, but I do it to complicate people's understanding that everyone has the same learning preferences because I think that's the the nature of the beast is sort of creating the need to know that like teaching's hard and, and hyper differentiated. And so starting that whole thing out with a space of like, oh, wow, these are lots of different things that even in this room of somewhat shared orientation around faculty who learned well enough to get into a uh, research one university teaching position, but we still are different. And that same thing is true for your students. So how then do we get in and start to think about designing learning that, that has some space for choice? It could be a kryptonite is if you get too prescriptive in your FLC. I think absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Here's a kryptonite that you guys probably can solve for me. So it never happened in mine quite, but we got really close where there is a faculty member who's got a bee in his bonnet and he needs help on a particular thing. And it's technical questions. This person just keeps at it and takes up then almost all of our meeting. Certainly at times we do share things and we problem solve and we dig deep into a problem. But sometimes as a facilitator, you know that problem is not a useful problem for everybody else to try and puzzle over. This really needs to be taken offline and set up some other way. Have you ever found a way to work around that? Oh boy, you're pointing at me. I was hoping Katie was going to take this. Well, I can start. I mean, I feel like I've 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 experienced that with your group a little bit. Oh, I'm fascinated. Go you know, on. What I've loved about going to do your faculty learning community, Jen, is there's that cranky wheel person, like the person who's there really to poke the holes in all the things. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that may be a little different than what you're talking about, Stephanie. That's a different kryptonite. Maybe I've, I've Oh, for it. I think that's exactly. Yeah. It's that person that's just kind of there with an agenda. Yeah. Might not be useful for everybody else in that meeting. 
Okay, but let me bring something to the table on that. That did happen in one of our cohorts where somebody was constantly, let's say, being contrary. Here's the thing that was fascinating about that process. I think there are cases that Stephanie brings up where you have to kind of, just as you would in a discussion class, you have to sort of gently find ways to segue them out of the conversation. You know, like, you know, you do all those tricks where you're kind of like reducing their participation by not calling them and, you know, it was things like that. In this case, we had someone who was very contrary and, and challenged everything, which initially felt very frustrating in the sense that we were trying to do, we're trying to advance a, a thought and a, and a philosophy and that being very contrary was, was sort of frustrating. What I soon though came to the conclusion is that was so necessary for us to go through, actually ended up being a complete blessing. Again, to have someone in the room to, to be that person, to embody all of the doubts that everybody might've had in that room, but were maybe too polite to actually say something, to allow us the grace of being able to address it directly and yeah. say, I see where you're finding some resistance here. Let me explain why we're doing it this way and not this way. But so that's my response to that. I thought it was a blessing. I think what you're naming is something that is a gift in any teaching and learning space. We've talked a little bit about vulnerability. We've talked a little bit about trust. We've talked about the kind of social part of all of this work. When I think about faculty learning communities, they aren't spaces that someone's coming in with. I mean, there often is a facilitator with expertise or that experts, quote unquote, are brought in or we're reading an expert something, something. But I think what makes them really productive is when we're all coming in saying, man, teaching and learning is really messy, hard. And the thing that's going to lessen that load a little bit is to recognize that we're in this struggle together and how powerful it can be to like open up that vulnerability. It can be really scary too. I mean, as an early teacher, I was terrified to do that. You know, at my heart of it, like as I've become a, a, you know, a mid-career teacher professor, I would say now, like my, probably my greatest strength is that I can really be comfortable saying, I don't know enough or that I'm excited to learn from you in this moment. Having that person asking questions gives this like great opportunity to be like, yeah, let's figure that out. Or yeah, this might not be right for everyone. Or that's how we all stay in the game. Because I think somehow some sense that we're all exactly the same or learn the same way or are going to have the same journey through anything we're doing is is just wrong. Yeah. And pushing back against the imposition of an of a normal or a right or an oughtness around teaching and creating space for that yeah. creativity. Faculty learning communities feel a little subversive will in that regard. In this, <laughs> it's in the this. radical part of it, Stephanie. It's totally supposed to be subversive. If you're looking at it from like a theoretical perspective or research methods perspective, it, it's a participatory action research. It's a bunch of people who are in a context doing an intervention or a change on the context. And instead of someone outside coming in saying, oh, we'll tell you how to do it. It's people in the space looking really critically at their own space to help change in a positive way that space for themselves and hopefully for others and giving voice to that, yeah. right? That that our experiences matter. Every single person that FLC is going to bring something that we're going to collectively get to our more rich or complex understanding because we were all in this room together. The cranky person, the person who's super gung-ho, like all of it, you know, is going to get us to a more rich and complex ability to do something. And having that non-hierarchical structure allows us all to have to be on Mm. all the time. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. If you attend a seminar and someone's 
conveying information to you. I don't know about you all, but part of my brain relaxes because, I'm, oh, they've got it. They're just going to let me know. I don't really have to think that hard. But to have the premise of the community be, we all don't know all the answers. It means that I have to constantly be thinking because whatever anybody's saying may not be something that's going to work for me. So it's actually a super engaging way to be, have have this very non-hierarchical structure. It would be great to have a classroom like that too, right? Certain <laughs> classrooms definitely are designed to be that way. And ideally, I think more and more of our university classrooms should have some of that experience. And certainly that gets harder and harder as you have more and more students and lecture-based okay. formats. But you know, where are the ways that we can have a breakout group or a, a group prod, you know, some ways where some of that messy rigor practice of building upon and across ideas and difference get to happen. Talking about benefits, I wonder if all of you, we all could just give a one sentence. This is, I'm taking a page from Katie's thing. She always has this amazing thing at the end of a conversation where it's like blank, it made me think. I wonder if we could do that right now about faculty learning communities. I'm going to start with always being on. It made me think. By teaching others, I learn. It made me think. A space of change and a growth mindset made me think. Beautiful. Guys, I learned so much. This has been amazing. Always an inspiration. That's right. (laughs) Thanks, you guys. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you. Thank you.